Most Decembers, we take a break from whatever sermon series, whatever book we're going through, and do a uh, short Christmas series. Um, and, and we are going to do, this year we're going to do Isaiah chapters 6 through 9. That's, that's our December series. Just Isaiah 6 today. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13 today. We're going to, over the month of December, work our way through Isaiah 6 through, uh, through chapter 9, verse 7. Some good, good Christmas passages. Really good Christmas passages here. Let's read Isaiah 6 and then we'll pray. Isaiah 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this time of year where we're sort of, uh, of thinking a little bit, even as a, uh, even as a society with, with, um, with still having um, sacred songs, um, Jesus songs being played on just regular radio and in, and in stores um, uh, to hear the, the gospel proclaimed um, on just regular radio and regular shopping mall PA systems. Um, we thank you for that. That's just your kindness um, to us. We thank you for a time of year where we can where we can think um, uniquely about the incarnation, about um, your divine, eternal Son taking on flesh to come to be among us 
and to, to die for our sins. We, um, we pray that you would help us as we look at this passage of Scripture today. Um, there's a lot here. We pray that you would, pray that you would help me to, to move right along with the sermon um, and pray that it would be clear. Uh, we have a lot to cover, so I pray that you would all give us all um, strength to pay attention and to listen um, and, and give us grace by your Spirit to submit to and believe what we have here in your word. Help us, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, there are quite a few surprises in this chapter. This is a, this is a surprising chapter. So there, there, are, there are five surprises, actually, in Isaiah 6. Five surprises that we want to look at this morning. Uh, I don't know uh, if, you're, if you're a big like, Christmas, you know, Christmas shopping kind of person and you like to buy surprises. You, know, you like to surprise your children or your grandchildren or your family members or whatever with uh, gifts at Christmas time. My... My, um, my oldest daughters now really don't care for surprises. They actually just want you mean, they just want me not to mess up their gift. Um, and so that's more interesting to them than, than, than getting a surprise. They want to get what they want to get. Um, my oldest daughter texted me the exact link on Amazon to what she wanted. She, you know, it wasn't good enough for her to say, I want and it's some coffee thing that I'm not getting her, by the way. But anyhow... Um, uh, some coffee thing, but she, it wasn't good enough for her to say, I want like this coffee thing. She wanted a very specific one, and so she sent me the link, and I ignored it. Um, but my other daughters are smarter, Bethy and Eden. They went uh, shopping on Black Friday without me and just bought the gift, um, and they came home. You'll never believe what you got us for Christmas. I'm just like, so the only one surprised by my Christmas gift to them is me, um, and so so it's Fun for one of us, I guess. I don't, I don't know. But they get what they want, you know? So you either want to get surprised or you want to just, you know, have, be safe. And you don't mess it up. And so I don't know where you are on surprises, but the surprises in Isaiah 6 are essential. We have five incredibly important surprises. Whether you like surprises or not, we have five incredibly important surprises in Isaiah chapter 6. First surprise. Surprise number one, the king is not dead. The king is not dead. Verse one says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So the year is about 740 BC. Alright, so the 740 years before Jesus was born, um, and things were going actually okay the decades previously. This is the nation of Judah. Um, so this is a couple hundred years removed from the, like the glory days, right? When King David was king and then King Solomon was king. Those were the good days. That's, when, that's, that's before they had the split, before Israel and Judah were two different nations. But now, now Israel and Judah have split. Judah's to the south, Israel to the north. Um, and so it's not the glory days, but King Uzziah's reign had overall been pretty good. Pretty good. He had reigned for 52 years. So that's a, that's a lot of stability. There, and, and during those years, for the most part, God had blessed the nation. He had given, him, given them prosperity and victory in their battles, stability, peace. Things were going pretty well for a time. 
But recently, things had started going downhill. The people of Judah had become more and more and more complacent. They stopped caring. And by complacent, what I mean by that is they'd stopped caring about God himself. They, they did many religious things. They did a lot of temple things, a lot of religious things. They did a lot of ceremonial things. But their hearts were far from God. And their, and their private lives, apart from sort of the religion, uh, were becoming more and more corrupt. Their hearts were becoming more and more far from God. And unfortunately, King Uzziah himself is sort of the the prime example of this. He's sort of the one leading the charge in arrogance and self-confidence. 2 Chronicles 26 says that he started out good. He set himself, when he was young, he he became king when he was a young man, a teenager, and he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, the chapter says, God made him prosper. So, so while he was humbling himself before the Lord, things were going well. But then, uh, down in verse 16 of that chapter in 2 Chronicles, it says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. And sort of the, the moment that seals the deal for King Uzziah is he goes into the temple of the Lord and he decides that he himself is going to, is going to burn incense in there. He's going, to offer, he's going to do what only a priest should be able to do. The, the, the word of God is clear. Only the priests are allowed to do what, what King Uzziah thought he should be able to do. So he's going to do things his own way. He, he grows arrogant. He, he, he grows proud. And he's like, I don't really care about the rules. I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, he goes in there and he has the, sense, the, 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 the incense burner in his hand. And... and the, the, the priest said, you can't do this, King Uzziah. You can't do this. He gets angry. And he does it anyway. And, and leprosy breaks out on his forehead. God strikes him with leprosy right then. And he actually lives out the last ten years of his life um, excluded, Second Chronicle says, excluded from the house of the Lord. And he lives in a separate house. He basically lives in a really nice leper colony for the rest of his life. And his son, Jotham, is, is sort of like, like the co-regent. He sort of does all the kingly things. The last ten years of his life, Uzziah is a leper. That's the way he dies. And so, Isaiah can feel it. Isaiah, everybody can feel that the nation is in crisis. Even the people whose hearts are far from God. Because because Assyria to the east is, 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 is growing stronger and stronger and stronger. The Assyrian Empire is like the great crisis. And, and, and what are the Assyrians going to do? Are they going to swoop in and swallow us up? That's what they're doing to the little nations. Are they going to do that to us? The people of Judah are concerned. And the, and the stability of this king who had reigned for 52 years, that's gone. Uzziah is dead. Is the, is the next king, is he going to be any good? What's, what's going to happen? Is, is Assyria going to get us? And then Isaiah is feeling all of that, but then he's also feeling like the spiritual and the moral um, decay of the nation. He can, he can feel like the character of the nation cracking and crumbling. And so, he goes to the temple and he's confronted with our first surprise. The king is not dead. Because Isaiah sees that the Lord is sitting 
upon a throne, high and lifted up. Yes, it's true that another king, another human king, have, has done what human kings do. He has died. Human kings come and go. But the Lord is as he ever was. He is alive and he is sitting on his throne. This is a good surprise for all of us. Because on one level we kind of know it, but on another level we forget it often. We need to be surprised by this this morning. Because you are going to face one crisis after another in this life. Maybe it'll be a bunch of little crises, or maybe it'll be one big crisis. You're going to face crisis after crisis in this life. And another thing you're going to see is that the heroes and the safety nets and the saviors and the, and, and the, the help of this world, even the best people in our lives, cannot be the ally that we need in the end. They cannot atone for our sins. They cannot grow us in holiness. They cannot give us peace that transcends all understanding. They cannot get us into eternal joy with God Himself. It is good for us to look at Isaiah 6.1 and see this first surprise that, that yes, 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 kings come and go, even, the, even like the most like successful of them. They come and go. Safety nets in this world come and go. Human help comes and goes. But the king, the king, is not dead. That's surprise number one. Second surprise, the king is unimaginably holy. Surprise number two, not only is the king not dead, the king is unimaginably holy. So he sees the Lord in this vision. Isaiah goes into the temple and he has this vision. And he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe fills the temple. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. These are these, these like um, fiery angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now what we have to understand here is that Isaiah was a prophet. He was one of the... He was one of the good guys. We have to understand, this is Isaiah chapter 6. This is, this is the, the, the book of Isaiah. This is, Isaiah's already got some profiting under his belt. He's already done some, he's already done some prophesying. He's already, he's already done some, some serving. He, Isaiah's one of the good ones. He knows that the, that the nation is crumbling, and he knows whose fault it is. He gets it. But then, he has this vision of the Lord. And, and what is the Lord? The Lord is holy. Which means, when you see that word holy, what it means is that God is completely separate from anyone or anything else. God is different. He's different. God exists in his own category where no one else exists. This is a massive surprise to us because we are always, always, always thinking of God in human ways. But His goodness is nothing like ours. His love is nothing like ours. His justice, His wisdom, nothing like ours because He is goodness itself. He is love. He is justice. He is wisdom. 
He's not really good at those things. He is those things. And, and, and we have a hard time getting our minds around that, so Scripture helps us here. Scripture, look, at, look at the way that the, that the Bible describes what the seraphim are doing. What we have to remember is that these seraphim are sinless beings. They have no sin whatsoever to be ashamed of. These seraphim have never had a sinful thought, word, action, attitude. They've never sinned. They're sinless. And yet they cannot bear to look at the holiness of God. They, they cover their eyes. They cover their feet. And all they do is just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And that is because God is nothing like us. God's holiness is not simply that He has never sinned. His holiness is that He is goodness itself. He is the, he is the kind of goodness that doesn't allow for anything sin, sinful anywhere near Him. Not, not only is He sinless, but, but he, he cannot and will not abide sin in His presence. He is, a, he is a whole different kind of good. Let's say I was born in 1981. I was, so that's easy to imagine, alright? Let's say I lived for 10,000 years. That's harder to imagine, and none of you want to, alright? So let's say I, I, I was born in 1981, and I lived the year 11,000, I don't know, 10,100, 1,191. I lived for 10,000 years. Whatever that is. You do the math. I lived for 10,000 years. So that's, that's less likely. That's hard to believe. Um, it's possible, but it's not likely. Now, now let's say that I never sinned once. That's impossible. All right? Born in 1981, lived for 10,000 years, never sinned once. If that was somehow true, my goodness would still be nothing compared to God's goodness. I still would be unworthy to stand in his presence. I still there be because he is because he is infinitely good. He is infinitely holy. He is in a whole other category. There still would be no comparison. God is infinitely holy. He is infinitely good. He is goodness itself. And we see that in the seraphim. They are, they are sinless beings and they cannot bear to look upon His holiness. This is, this is what we were created to know. This God, the God of the Bible, is who we were created to know. This is who we were created to worship. We all want something big. We want something big. We want something transcendingly, eternally big. And so what we have done in our own stupidity is we have, is we have taken this world that God has created for His own glory and we have tried to jam this world filled with our own like successes and our own five-star reviews, and our own statues, and our own accomplishments, and our own achievements. 
We've tried to fill this world and fill our lives that God has created for His glory with our own glory. And we are, all of us, coming up empty. We are coming up empty. And we are dying like King Uzziah died, as outcasts. It's not working. The answer, the only answer, is to know the Holy God of the Bible. The only answer is to be thrilled by the holiness of God. The complete otherness of God. The great, the great difference. The great, the, the, the great holiness of God. That is the great thrill. That is the great joy. It is to love and to worship the one and only holy God to be known and loved by Him and to, and to know and love and worship Him. The great question, of course, though, is how can we? How can we? With all of our sin, well, with all of our sin, it's possible, it, 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 it happened, I, I was born in 1981, and it is possible, I suppose, that I live for 10,000 years, but if I did live for 10,000 years, I would simply be piling up my sins higher and higher and higher. If the sinless angels can't bear to look at Him, then how can we, with all of our sin, possibly come anywhere near Him? That's the question that Isaiah has. And that brings us to our third surprise. Surprise three. Surprise number three. The king is life-changingly gracious. The king is life-changingly gracious. Starting in verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So, So here is what happens when we see the God of the Bible as the Bible describes Him. So now we're not going to have this vision that Isaiah had. And we don't need to, because we have the Word of God, and the Word of God has has clearly lined out who God is. And so when, when Isaiah realizes firsthand just how holy God actually is, he is, Isaiah is overcome with his own uncleanness, with his own sinfulness. So now think about this with me. Track, track with this with me. This is, this is helpful because, again, when we start talking about things like God is unimaginably holy, once you put the word indescribable or unimaginable to something, it makes it very difficult to imagine or to describe, right? And so the Bible helps us by showing us how people, sort of like us, respond to the holiness of God. Isaiah, kind of like us. He's kind of like us. He was definitely at this time a believer. He had spent the first five chapters of Isaiah proclaiming the word of God. He had opened up his mouth and spoke as a messenger of God. Isaiah was one of the good ones. Yes, it's true. His nation was crumbling, was falling apart at the seams. And, and Isaiah, like if you would read through like Isaiah chapter 5, the, just the chapter right before this, you hear Isaiah over and over saying, Woe to those people. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine 
inflames them. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own, or, or their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Those who are heroes at drinking wine, valiant men in mixing strong drink. What kind of hero is that? I was actually just talking with my um, four-year-old daughter, daughter Haddon, yesterday. We have some of the most uh, insightful conversations. And I said, and, and, and Haddon came into the room, and she had a shield um, that she had stolen from one of her brothers. Um, and she came into the room, she hopped up on a chair, and she jumped off the chair. And she goes, when I'm 14, I'm going to be a superhero. I was like, oh, cool. I was like, what's your superpower going to be? She goes, making hot chocolate and drinking it. Like that is a great superpower. It reminded me a lot of verse 22 of, of chapter 5. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. What's their superpower? What's heroic about them? They drink a lot. Also, they acquit the guilty for a bribe. They deprive the innocent of his right. They build big houses. They build big houses. Isaiah 5, Isaiah 5 I didn't read all the verses, but they build big houses. They, they, make, they, they get a lot of land for themselves. They, they, they trample on the, the innocent people around them. There's innocent, hardworking people around them. They could care less about that. They'll, they'll stick them in jail if they get bribed enough. Pretty, it's pretty clear that Isaiah is right to say, woe to those, woe to those. Look at all these people. They're messing everything up. Woe to you people. But then he sees the holiness of God, and what does he say? He says, woe is me. He says, I'm right. <laughs> I'm, I'm with them. I'm with them. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We're all in the same boat. We're in the same boat. Isaiah sees the holiness of God. So, you guys, do you guys know who Elon Musk is? Elon Musk is really, really rich. Elon Musk is richer than I am. Why is this, how is this funny? I checked. It's true. Actually, he's significantly richer than I am. But, that's a statement I can say. I can say that statement. I can say, I'm richer than those people. Elon Musk, he's richer than me. Right? I can say that's a, that's a, that's a logical statement. Be, be, before Isaiah came face to face with the holiness of God, Isaiah said, God's holier than me, but I'm holier than those people. Right? He kind of thought about it the way I think about Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk is, he, I mean, I'm never going to be as rich as Elon Musk. It's never happening. That's never going to happen. He's, he's way richer than I am. But I'm way richer than a bunch of other people. That's what Isaiah was, that's, that's what Isaiah was thinking here. He was thinking, yeah, God's like a ten. I'm like a five. These people are like Hitler. They're like a one, Maybe. Isaiah comes into the room. He, he sees the holiness of God. And he says, oh, wait, no, it's God in a category all by himself, and then it's the rest of us. We are unclean. God is good. We are not. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. 
Isaiah takes a break from saying, woe to everybody else. They deserve judgment. They deserve condemnation. They deserve punishment. They, they deserve what's coming to them. They are ruining everything. And Isaiah says, oh, I deserve death. I deserve punishment. I stand guilty before God. Oh, no. Even... I just, I mean, I, 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 this was just pointed out to me this week. I'd never seen this before. Even like his greatest service, like his thing was his preaching, right? It was his words. It was what he stood up and said. And what does he say about himself? He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Like the, like the thing about him, the great thing, is actually his worst thing. It's like the, it's like the picture of what's wrong with him. He's got nothing to bring to the table. It is God, and then it is everybody else. God, in his mercy, shows Isaiah that, which is super kind, but God doesn't leave Isaiah there. Verse 6, God takes the initiative. God does something about this. God makes Isaiah clean. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is what only a holy God can do. And this is a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us on the cross. This is the only way the holiness of God doesn't kill us. Because we are like Isaiah. We have piled up our sins higher and higher. We are people of unclean lips who dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. The only way the holiness of God doesn't kill us is if he himself cleanses us. And that's what he does. He takes away the guilt of Isaiah. He atones for the sin of Isaiah. This is what Jesus Christ does for us on the cross. He takes away our guilt. He atones for our sin, which means he, he pays for our sins and he, and he brought, brings us peace with God. When Christ died on the cross for our sins, he cleansed us. He took away our guilt. So we are no longer guilty before God. And he made it so that the Holy God is no longer against us. So now we can stand in the holy presence of the Holy God and not be afraid. So think about this with me. Like, if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, if you you haven't, by God's grace, believed the gospel, if, if you're not in Christ, then the greatest danger to you is the holiness of God. That is the greatest danger. All other dangers in your life flow from that danger. The holiness of God is your big crisis. And so, because Christ, because Christ died for us, because, because the holy Christ has done what only the Holy God can do, and He has cleansed us thoroughly. He has completely atoned for our sin. He's completely forgiven us. 
Now the holiness of God is, has gone from being our greatest danger to our greatest safety. Now, now the, the holiness of God is actually what ensures that we are safe now and forevermore. Because the holiness of God is now for us. It's now protecting us. It's now ensuring that, that evil will not have the final say on us. Because of Christ, the holiness of God has gone from our greatest danger to our greatest source of safety. And since this is true, we have nothing to fear. You have, if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. This is what Christ has done by taking away our sin. And we see that vividly in verse 8. Verse 8, Isaiah says, and I, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then, then I said, Here am I, send me. Listen to this. He goes from, Isaiah's having quite a day. He's having, he has having, he's having quite a day. It would be really hard if you were hanging out with Isaiah to keep up with his mood swings. Alright? This is a lot. This is a lot. This, is, this would be exhausting if you were his friend. Because he goes from kind of going into the temple, assuming he's one of the good guys, to seeing the holiness of God and realizing he's nothing, and that none of us are, and that he has no right to ever open his lips again. Right? So, so he kind of melts into this puddle of, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, I do not have the right to ever speak on behalf of God again. What have I ever been thinking I was doing? What, what is wrong with me? I'm, I'm just going to lay in this puddle and die. So he's gone from feeling pretty good, la-da-da-da-da, to puddle, to here I am, send me. Whoa, you're back on your feet. All right, cool. What happened? You're ready to go talk on behalf of God again. That's neat. What happened? The grace of God happened. God completely cleansed him. We are silly. We are silly. We think that we'll have more confidence and more courage if, if we construct a, a God who's just nice all the time and just find, kind of fine with everybody. And, and if we construct a version of ourselves that's pretty good, like five, five or six on the scale, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an okay person. God's a ten, but he's a nice ten. He's a, he's a ten who's, who's happy with me. He likes that I'm a five or a six and I'm not a, I'm not a Hitler. So me and God are pretty good. We think that courage will come from that. The Bible says no. Courage comes from seeing you are a puddle. You are a puddle. And God, in his grace, has completely cleansed you. If, track with me, if you believe the gospel, then here's what this means. The God who is so holy that sinless angels cannot bear to look at him has made you clean. So how clean are you then? If that holy God has cleansed you, you are clean. You're clean. You're clean. And this, and this gives Isaiah courage. To do this thing where, la-da-da-da, I'm pretty good, to puddle, to here am I, that's the grace of God. That's God saying, I am far more holy than you ever realized, and I love you far more than you ever realized, and you are now far cleaner than you ever thought possible. 
This is what gives us courage. This is what gives us courage. And we need courage, as Isaiah is going to find in the very next verse. The grace of God gives Isaiah courage, and he needs it because of our fourth surprise. Surprise number four. The king is brutally honest. The king is not dead. The king is unimaginably holy. The king is life-changingly gracious. And then surprise number four, the king is brutally honest. Verse 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. This is where most sermons end. Tony, if you hop online and you listen to a sermon on Isaiah 6, most of them are going to end right there. Because that's where, that's, it ends, that's a good ending right there. Let's just wrap it up. Wrap it up right there. Here am I, send me. All right. Yeah, send me. Good. Woo! Verse 9, though, these next verses are quoted way more by New Testament authors than here am I, send me. The, the New Testament writers, they don't quote that part of Isaiah 6. They quote this part of Isaiah 6. Because this helped them to understand what was going on around them. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. All right, God, send me. What is my message? You're going to go tell them that they're not going to, they're, they're not going to believe. You go announce to them that they are, that they are reprobates. Oh, cool. Why am I doing that? Verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You're a messenger messenger of judgment, Isaiah. You're a messenger of judgment. These people have rejected me. I have rejected them. You get to go tell them. Verse 11, this is the question I would have been asking. Then I said, how long, O Lord? How, how long I got to do this? Is it, is there, it, so what I, Isaiah's not saying, oh, I don't want to do this, woe is me. No, he's not saying that. Um, he's done with the woe is me. Um, what he's saying now is, are these people, are they, are they ever going to believe? Are they ever going to believe? Is there, is there no chance? Do they have a chance? That's what Isaiah is saying here. He's not having a pity party for himself. He is thinking about the, the nation that he loves. And he's saying, so wait, wait. Is, uh, do I get to, like, will there be repentance? Will there be good news? How long is this going to go on, God? How long am I just going to be like announcing their doom and their judgment? Verse 11. He says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. These people are rejecting me. They are turning their back on me. They have taken me for granted. They want nothing to do with actually worshiping and honoring me. They have rejected me. I am turning my back on them. The Lord, verse 12, removes people far away. They're going to go into exile, and and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. It is going to be a barren wasteland. And listen to this, verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. This is, this is judgment upon judgment. This is punishment upon punishment. So, so not only 
if you, if you picture it as a forest, right? If you picture the nation of Judah as a forest, and 90% of it is just gone. And then there's just these stumps left. God says, even then, the fire is going to come again. Punishment is going to come even upon those stumps. The very preaching of the word is going to cement them in their unbelief. It is going to be the it is going to be judgment upon them. So we have lost all sense of this in the year 2022. But what we have to understand, the, the first century church, they they got this because they looked around and they saw, they, they saw how the, the, the word of God softened some people's hearts and then it hardened others people other people's hearts. And they just like, this is what is happening here? Why are these why do these people not want it? Why do they turn from their ways and believe the gospel? What is wrong with you? These verses helped them to make sense of what the mission of the church is. It is to proclaim the word of the Lord, come what may. If you don't believe the gospel, you are going to be punished. If you turn your back on the word of God, you're going to get what's coming to you. If you choose the riches of Egypt over the reproach of Christ, you're going to get what's coming to you. If you disregard what the word of God says about, about anything our society wants you to disregard the word of God about, human life, marriage, sexuality, if you want... If you want to take what, what society says instead of what the Word of God says, you're going to get what's coming to you. So my, my job as a preacher is not to try to take the, the Word of God and, and make it so that it kind of fits in with the, with the prevailing philosophies of the day. I don't want to take the Word of God and then, and then take these other completely unbiblical worldviews that are floating around and try to prove how the Word of God can kind of fit in there and be buddies with, with, the, with the sinfulness and the rebellion of the world. My, my aim is not to make the Word of God popular. To make it relevant. That's not the goal of me, that's not, that, the, of, the, of the pastor, the preacher. It's not the goal of the church. It's not the, it's not the goal of the church members. Your, your job with your children and your grandchildren and those you have influence with is to say, here's what the Word of God says. Here's what the Word of God says about marriage and divorce. Here's what it says. Here's what the Word of God says about the sanctity of human life. Here's, a, here's what the Word of God says about sexuality, about money, about work, about... Uh, uh, here's what it says. Most importantly, here's what the Word of God says about the Gospel of Jesus Christ and who you are and where you are without Him. Now, hopefully, hopefully, as we compassionately and clearly say, here's what the Word of God says, our hope and our prayer is that God will use us as, as ministers of reconciliation. That, that as we say the Word of God, that, that people come to life, right? That, that God does this wonderful work in their heart and, and they, they come to life and they believe the Gospel and they live for Jesus. 
But what we have to understand is that perhaps he will use his word to just further pronounce judgment upon their rebellion. When they stand guilty before him one day, he says to them, you had your chance. You heard the word. Either way, either way, it's our privilege to speak on behalf of the one who is so holy that the sinless angels cannot even bear to look upon him. And the one that is so gracious that he did what only that holy God could do. He has made us completely clean. He has completely forgiven us. And so now we don't even we we we, we not only have the, the privilege of knowing this this great, glorious, holy God. So not only do we have the big thing that every human craves, we, we have that. We can love and know and worship the holy God. Not only do we have that, but we also get to speak on behalf of Him. We get to open up His Word and say, here He is, please, please turn to Him. We're going to if we're going to be able to, to clearly speak the, 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 the brutally honest word straight from the king, we're going to need the grace that comes from only knowing his, his good gospel kindness to us in Christ. Finally, our fifth surprise. You can stop checking the clock now. I'm on the last point. I made it. Surprise number five, the king has a plan. If, you're trying to, if you've been wondering why is this a Christmas sermon, it's because of this. The very last sentence of the chapter. Not the last verse, the last sentence. The last sentence of verse 13 says, the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed is its stump. Feels like a, feel like, feels like a password for an espion, in an espionage movie, right? Holy seed is a stump. All right. What do we do with this? Verse 11 says, How long, O Lord? And then God says, God says, Destruction is going to come, and then destruction is going to come again. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, verse 13 says. So this is, this is destruction upon destruction, punishment upon punishment. And then he says, a stump will remain. After all that destruction, a stump will remain, and that holy seed is its stump. The nation of Judah is going to be decimated. But this is not the end of the story because a stump remains. The forest has been burnt down, but a stump remains. This is a small remnant. It's a, it's a few people who refuse to bow the knee to false gods. It's a, it's a small remnant of people who are going to commit themselves to God and to His Word and to His glory and to honoring Him no matter what. Believing His promises no matter what. We heard in last week's sermon, God keeps His promises. And since God keeps His promises, he, he is keeping His promise to Abraham. It's not looking good as the forest is being burnt down. God keeps His promises and God has a plan. Because from this stump, a little shoot is going to 
grow. Surprise number five. Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And that fruit, you can look around the, the, the auditorium this morning and see that fruit. The shoot is coming from the stump of Jesse. Who is this shoot from the stump of Jesse? It's the Messiah. It's the one that Isaiah 11 says later on in that passage. says He's going to usher in the day where the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the one that Isaiah 53 says grew up before him like a, like a young plant, like a root of dry ground. It's just a, just a little shoot out of a stump. What is, what's even going on here? What is this? It's, it's nothing. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That, when that angel takes those tongs and, and takes that coal and, and, and touches Isaiah with it, this is what Christ has done for us on the cross. He has, he has been pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's this child. It's this, it's this small shoot. He's going to be born the stump of Jesse, the house of David, the, the town of David, Bethlehem. It's the Messiah who is going to do what only a holy God could do. Take our punishment and make us clean. The king has a plan. And right now, Maybe it feels like to you, or looks like to you, it's only a stump of a plan. Maybe the church, maybe the church seems even more stumpy than usual. Oh man, we are. What are we doing? What is this? Is there any? Like, what, are we making any difference whatsoever? Maybe it even looks like the king is dead. He's not. This little shoot that came from the stump of Jesse. This little shoot that was born in a manger, the perfect life, died on the shameful cross, was raised from the dead, and he is right now reigning in all of his holiness. And one day, his, his holiness, which, is, which will be packaged in the splendor of his glory, is going to fill the earth as the water covers the sea. So let's be ready for that day. Let's believe his gospel, and let's share the brutal honesty of his word until he comes again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage, and I, I thank you for the endurance that you gave us to, um, to think about it together uh, this morning. There's a lot here to think about, and, and I thank you that you, uh, by your Spirit, um, give us help as we, as we um, come underneath your word, as we sit underneath your word, that you, you help us. And I pray that you would, you would do that um, even as we continue to consider what we have here in Isaiah 6. Help us to more and more and more see 
you as unimaginably holy. And, and help us to get a really good, proper understanding of who we are apart from Christ. And then help us to get a proper understanding of who we are because of Christ. And pray, God, that in all of that, you would give us courage to hold up your truth to the world around us, in, in our homes, with our children, with our grandchildren, with our loved ones, um, and, and wherever else we may get opportunity. Help us, God, to just clearly, compassionately, joyfully hold up your truth. We thank you that, um, that you did have a plan and that we were part of it. This is your, this is your incredible grace to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.